Welcome, everybody, to the Eyes on Big Podcast, your go-to Big Ten football podcast, brought to you by the Amador Whiskey Company. I'm your co-host, Jeffrey the Greek, joined, as always, by... This is Big Kurt here. Big Kurt, you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I'm Big Kurt on Twitter at B1GKURT. And I am Jeffrey the Greek at Jeffrey the Greek. Thank you so much for listening and downloading the podcast. Uh, Kurt and I, you know, it's it's a lot of things coming at. You got you, you still got work. I've, I've been very busy for work uh, these past several weeks. Uh Family stuff never quits. Then you have all the news that came on. So at one point, we were going to release this podcast, which is very special to me, The an interview with Scott Docterman of The Athletic. This was going to be the only podcast probably released for another week or two until we got into a couple more off-season pods. Then all hell broke loose, as we just talked about on the previous emergency pod. So... Uh, this will wind up being a standalone podcast, but I uh, just wanted to explain that at one point this was going to be its own standalone podcast, but nature nature takes its course sometimes. Stuff occurs. Stuff as, occurs. As they say. Uh, you listen to the, the Scott Docterman podcast. Just any quick thoughts or? Uh, just great interview, of course. Uh, really like Scott. Always have like Scott. You know, a lot of these writers are you find are miserable twats, but he's not that. And he's, he happens to be really good at his job. So I've always respected Scott even long before we had a connection to him. Right. And thoroughly enjoyed the interview. Um, just thanks, Scott, for, for yeah. joining us. Really appreciate it. I think it's a big hit for the Eyes on Big podcast. Uh, you said you thoroughly enjoyed. Thorough is a word that describes Scott. I mean, he, if he sits down to write an article, he's going to do his job. So um, for anybody that potentially doesn't know Scott, he is an Iowa uh, focuses on Iowa for the most part for the athletic. However, he writes across the board on a lot of college athletics, college football. The first part of the interview is getting to know Scott. The meat of the podcast is talking about the college football world of which Scott is plugged into. So I invite each and every listener to stick around and listen to that podcast. The last part of it uh, is is pretty Hawkeye specific. I'm not going to have Scott on the podcast and not take the chance to talk Hawks with him. So we definitely do that. But I think there's a ton in there for everybody to enjoy. The other thing about Scott is he's an actual journalist, which is a dying breed these days. So I respect that. I could not agree more. Yeah. I, and, and I'm sure he'll listen to this. And I hope he takes that as a compliment because I know both you and I meant that. All right, without any further ado, here is my interview with Scott Docterman of The Athletic because Kurt was swamped and was not able to to join the interview. Enjoy. All right, the Eyes on Big Podcast is joined now by Scott Docterman of The Athletic. This is a big honor for me to have you on the podcast. Scott, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. It's uh, It's been a wild couple of days in the Big Ten world at college football land. And uh, yeah, so... I don't know, you know, approaching the 4th of July holiday thinking, all right, I'm going to relax a little bit, take some vacation time. And uh, yeah, a couple of vacation days got punted to time TBD. So uh, yeah, it's been a busy few days. Insane. Uh, me and you were just joking before we started recording here that um, I had a, sh- a list of, of questions and topics to go over. Uh Half of them are gone now, or at least extremely modified. So we'll just kind of muscle through that as best we can. But uh, um, as uh, Kurt and I already talked about in the on the first part of the podcast, we've kind of got three sections here we're going to work through. So first section is kind of getting to know you a little bit. 
section two, we'll have this will be the probably the bigger section where we talk about all the craziness that's going on in all of college football in the Big Ten. Uh, and then the last section, uh, you know, near and dear to my heart, we'll talk about our Hawks. So uh, first first question it would be, you're obviously a huge sports fan. So how did that come about? Where did you grow up? Uh, you know, get me through the first couple stages of your sports fandom. Yeah, I grew up in Burlington, Iowa. Um, that's where I was born and raised and lived. Um, uh, I started, I, I remember the first time I actually watched a football game and it was Super Bowl 14. It was the Steelers and Rams. I was in kindergarten and I liked the name Los Angeles Rams at that time. And, and so I bet my dad a dollar or my dad bet me, he would give me a dollar. And if the Steelers won and I would, uh, and or I should say if the Rams won, if the Steelers won, I had to clean the toy room and I had two younger siblings. So obviously I lost that bet and I learned the hard way about betting. Uh, so, but it really fueled an interest that I've never been able to shake all these years later. Um, I absorbed any kind of football, baseball content. When I was a kid, I played sports all the way up through the end of my high school years. Uh, but that's really where it became it. And it was kind of well known in, in my area that I was like this uh, almost savant about stats and football cards and baseball. And so even when I see parents of players take like, uh, you know, one guy is uh, Jackson Rexroth, who's going to be a redshirt freshman on the football team in Iowa. His dad, Jason, uh is the older brother of my best friend growing up when I was really little. And, and so we ran into each other at, at on Iowa live in Cedar Rapids. And he's like, I always knew you were going to be doing this stuff. And it, so it's kind of funny to, to do that, but I, I always like to play sports too. I played football all the way through my senior year of high school at Burlington high school. Um, you know, strange trivia was, I'm the one who took the last snap and the only BHS uh, playoff victory, in st- you know, in school history. Nice. So yay me on that one. But I, I, I wouldn't mind being, you know, alongside other people. I'd rather be the first than the last two. For sure. <laughs> Which is uh, the case. One thought I had is you're a Bears and Hawkeye fan, correct? I grew up a Hawkeye fan. I've, I've tried to split you know my fandom to be as objective as i can yeah. but but i followed them all the way up and then of course the bears too and unfortunately which is really starting to become a a problem bears and cubs both i'm just at, at my wits end for sure uh but what i was getting at is i wonder if do you feel like you are chasing the high that was 1985 from at that point all the way to present day uh with that being the super bowl championship for the bears and Iowa ascending to the top of the college football world being number one. I mean, that had to be the the height of your fandom, at least up to that point. Yeah, for sure. I, I was in sixth grade. And uh, so, you know, I've kind of obsessed over games, uh, you know, on the weekend for both teams. And, you know, it's kind of going back and forth between my parents. One lived in the Des Moines area, one lived in Burlington still. And, you know, I remember sitting with my cousin watching the Michigan-Iowa game in 1985. And he was a Michigan fan. So that was kind of fun to, to go through that. And, uh, but, yeah, chasing the high, you know, it's been, it was always frustrating with the Bears because they had a really good team even after that. And they never reached the mountaintop. But, but with Iowa, it was, it was entertaining because, you know, Hayden Fry – 
there's really been a love affair with Hayden Fry ever since he came in because he just has that personality, that persona that kind of precedes him. And, and so, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, back then and then all the way through, you know, the 1990 when they went to the Rose Bowl, 91, my senior year of high school, they had such a great year. It was a lot like, in some ways, it was like last year for, for Iowa football because they were 10-1 uh, and one in the regular season, didn't win the Big Ten title. They lost to Michigan during the season. But, uh, you know, they, they had so much going on. Um, they had, uh, you know, the, the gang loose shooting and everything. So it was, uh, you know, so you follow, followed it all the way through, whether it was as a fan growing up, um, knowing the, some of the players while I was in college, hanging out with them, even though I went to community college in Burlington and then Western Illinois, and then, and then finally been able to cover them. And, you know, so, yeah, I've always had kind of peak interest in Iowa and you like to see them do well. And then now I'm kind of rooting for the best possible story, which in most cases is for the Iowa readers is, uh, you know, a win or, you know, some sort of statement victory or historic moment. So now get you through, um, you know, us past college. Um, and I, I, I have to admit, I'd, I'll need a little bit of help here, but pretty sure it was with the Gazette, right. That you worked yeah. at, um, you know, I think I can go ahead and speak for, for Hawk fans. Uh, the height of Hawkeye poddom mm. uh, was you and Mark Morehouse, the on Iowa podcast. Um, I miss it dearly. <laughs> mm-hmm. I understand all good things come to an end. Uh, so no, no judgment there, but, um, and then, uh, through the Gazette into the athletics. So maybe just talk through that transition for you. Yeah. Um, you know, just, uh, hit briefly on my first careers. I went, I worked in Muscatine, Iowa for two years, the Muscatine journal covering a lot of things. I worked at Fort Dodge for a year. I was police and County government. So I covered some really messed up stuff. It was, it was pretty rough a few times. Uh, for six years, I was sports editor in St. Joseph, Missouri at St. Joseph News Press and covered the Chiefs. Um, also supervised the staff. And at that point, after about five or six years, it was like, you know, plus having two small kids, it was like, I, I got to make a change. I came back to Iowa, worked for the Gazette for 10 years, um, enjoyed it immensely, covered, uh, you know, Iowa basketball as much as Iowa football, um, you know, Mark and I and Mike, I, I would say that the trio of us through a lot of that era was as good as good a coverage as you'll ever find for a college football beat. Um, I felt like we were really hit all the angles. And then of course our podcast, which was, was really fun to start because we kind of started talking about it um, going in 2009, I think it was. And then we made it happen in 2010 during this the summer. And our second one, I'll never forget, we were coming back from Big Ten Media Days and I had a uh, little handheld uh, recorder and I'm driving, Mark's sitting in the, in the passenger seat and I'm driving like 80 in the Western suburbs and we're passing this, this uh, kind of digital recorder like this back and forth talking about it and, and posting it. But, you know, Mark and I are great friends. We remain. So uh, I saw him last fall on a bye week. I'd like to get up there and see him again sometime soon. And we had great camaraderie. We were different people with similar interests. And, you know, we both had, we both had a similar perspective. I think, you know, we weren't necessarily knee jerk reactionaries that you get. We were, I felt like we were pretty informed on the issues and we tried to talk through them in a rational way. And, you know, and there were times where, yeah, we went, we put ourselves out there, but I felt like 
every time we did that, whether it was me or him, and I was probably more a little more rational than he is at times. Uh, but every every time we did that, I felt like it mattered. You know, I mean, if I'm on the radio every day and I'm like, you know, after a loss, Ferran should be fired, Gary Barter should be fired, Fran should be fired, overreact, you know, bench the quarterback, bench Jordan Bohan, whatever, then that all kind of washes out. But if I you know, a year after that, I'm like, you know what, Iowa really needs to do this. Then I felt like that, okay, you know, and then I'm coming from a perspective that, that I think people appreciate in Iowa, maybe in New York, it's not that way or Chicago, but in Iowa, that's that way. So yeah, we worked together um, through 2016. And then I left for a, a little outlet, well, an outlet called Land of 10, which didn't make it two years under the, you know, Cox Media Group and uh, under the thumb of the Atlanta Journal Constitution, and uh, but we kept the podcast up until Mark uh, left the industry in uh, October of 2020. So it was a fun time. It was a great time, ten plus years, and uh, you know, we'll I'm sure we'll be on the same uh, podcast here soon. We've been talking about you know putting one together just once, you know, just a hey, how's it going type of podcast, and yep. I hope I hope we can do that someday. Yeah. Um, like I said, it was the best. Um, I, I do know what you're talking about. Uh, I, I felt that you both had a, a way of dropping uh, a little bit of information, but so subtle. <laughs> it was subtle, yet if you were really paying attention, it came through in volumes. Um, so I, I'm totally picking up with what you're putting down. Um, and the last thing maybe here before we move on to the next section is with the athletic, I, I mean, I, I believe, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not uh, privy to the business model, but the general thought process is uh, sports fans still want to read a, a well-constructed article uh, about sports in general, definitely their, their favorite program. It seems like that's what the athletic is, is driven at uh, the audience, what they're getting at. And I, you know, I think you guys are, are hitting home with that most of the time. Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the industry has changed so much as we know from what it was 10 years ago, especially 20 years ago. And, you know, the model kept, you know, we've seen kind of the downward cycle of sports illustrated as kind of that outlet for long form journalism or uh, you know, or, even, you know, that's for, of course, newspapers. And then when ESPN.com laid off 100 staffers about in 2017, I want to say, then the athletic kind of filled that back and, and it decided to go hard in that area because it, it was born in 2016 and just in a couple of markets, Chicago and Toronto, I think was number two. And, and then at that point, um, they decided to, to move forward. And yeah, I think, I think fans readers have an interest in reading good journalism, you know, and well-conceived journalism. I know even sources, you know, like uh, administrators, commissioners of major conferences like it because it's not like aggregated content. It's not just hit quick and get it, you know, move on. It, we can research the topics and get really into the weeds with some of the stuff. And as we know, and what we'll talk about with, with realignment, and media rights and, and revenues and, and all these other, and then, you know, governance issues, NIL, all that requires a lot of thought and a lot of discussion. And, and I think, you know, the sources enjoy having the fact that, 
okay, if I sit down with you for an hour and explain this, it's not going to end up in a couple of sound bites. It's not yep. going to end up in a couple of uh, cheap quotes and then move on. I mean, we're going to really dig deep. And I think fans want to be informed because all these topics, there's so much nuance to them. And, and we don't want to come out with top 10 teams the Big Ten should try to add um, unless we have a reason to do that and an informed opinion and, and some discussion with people who matter. And, and so I, I think that's really uh, what I like and appreciate about it. We don't really have any boundaries, you know, in, in, in newspaper land, you have a confined space, you know, like, okay, this is going to be a 15 inch story or a 25 inch story and uh, versus, uh, you know, here, you know, and of course on television, it's time. And, but then at uh, the athletic, it's, you know, write the story as completely as possible. Sure, we don't want to write 8,000 words if it's a 4,000-word story because then you lose people. But I, th I think having that opportunity to tell a complete story and provide details, and, and you know, I think is really important. I mean, I fandom is fun. Uh, Twitter, Twitter is obviously a double-edged sword uh, mm -hmm. with that, um, but that probably transition, transitions us into section two here pretty good um i still got my sheet printed out from yesterday uh -huh. it's basically obsolete i i had thought one of our biggest topics was going to be that you know if we recorded yesterday it was going to be the eve of the one-year anniversary of the nil going through um mm -hmm. that has suddenly been uh kicked to the curb or as far mm -hmm. as you know hot topic uh a little bit with the divisions and, and expansion. Um, so I swear this was a question I had. I, I can't really prove it, but uh, a question I had for you, like second or third layer in, was, hey, Scott, uh, the fact that the SEC and the Big Ten are the only two conferences that haven't announced the divisions yet, is there something more to read into that? Maybe that was a prophetic question that I had already had written out a day or two ago, because I think there was something to that. A um, lot, of, lot of different ways I could take this question, but here, here's how I'll try it. Um, I don't think you can, it, it does not seem that we're going to stop at USC and UCLA. Uh, reports are that Oregon and Washington have already, you know, uh, um, uh, put a submission into the Big Ten to, to try to be admitted. I don't know if that's substantiated yet. Maybe you can help me out with that. Long story short is it would seem like uh, we would add more teams from the West, maybe Notre Dame. That's the big fish that's out there. If that's the case, and I know I'm being presumptive here, okay, but if that's the case, then I don't see how a conference like the Big Ten can get away from pods. I think you're you're going to have to have pods at that point, uh, regionality and and having alike opponents throughout the year. Uh, so, like I said, that was a big, expansive question. But give me your thoughts on the craziness that has been the last twenty four hours. <laughs> yeah, it's been really crazy. Um, and I followed the divisional discussion as closely probably as anybody and if you know it really depends on what the, the final makeup is and you know at least the final makeup being 2023 and beyond uh, I think right now Oregon and Washington are on watch 
for everybody. And, and if you're not doing your due diligence, in the big 10, uh, you know, which, which is of course, but big 12 is, is should be too. And then you're not doing your job and they're in your situation because this is the first day of a new commissioner with a, well, I should say Bob Bowlesby's got another month, but the commissioner, the new commissioner is there. So they've got to be having some serious conversations day one. Um, but Oregon and Washington fit the profile, what the Big Ten wants. Any kind of additions to the Big Ten, uh, you, you've got to be, I would say AAU institution is not the, a, a complete prerequisite, but your academics has to be in that same vein. So Washington and Oregon certainly fit that. Um, you know, I don't know about the Rocky Mountain schools, uh, the four, well, you know, Arizona's and Utah and Colorado, that they could fit that as well. I think Notre Dame is the, the big one, and that's the big one for everybody. Uh, what is it going to do? What's it envision? Because it doesn't want to be left behind, That's and it's been able to stay independent because of that. But what does this mean for the college football playoff? I would anticipate with these additions, just like with the SECs, that I would, if I'm the Big Ten and the SEC, I, I say, okay, we're going to scrap the entirety that you automatically get qualified by winning your conference. Maybe it's just the 12 best teams, and that could end up being five from the SEC, four from the Big Ten, and three from other league. Uh, when it comes to divisional debate, right now there is no chance there's going to be a division in the Big Ten. The reason why is they want to cycle through as many teams as possible to as many spots as possible. The, the, the mechanism that I think that they're eyeing, and I think now that USC and UCLA is part of this, is how many teams are protected and then cycle through right. as often as possible. The model that makes the most sense at this very moment and who knows, maybe on Twitter, somebody's breaking a story about somebody else joining the league. So it could be, you know, by the time this podcast posts, <laughs> it, it could be out the window. But uh, but let's say it is 16 go, uh, in the near future. Then it would be like three, six, six. So you play three teams every year and then six one year, six other ones the next year or two years on, two years off type of thing. So you're playing everybody three teams, four times over four years, two teams twice over four years. And that would make a championship game. And it allows for uh, to have um, USC play Illinois more than Michigan or Ohio state. So that, that would be my guess. Yeah. This. So, and so you kind of cut out there okay. a little bit, hopefully, hopefully it'll come through, but, um, and just to kind of expand, I mean, I mean, obviously the end goal here is well, the end goal is the most money for the conference <laughs> TV deals as possible. That's, that's, that's the beginning, middle and end goal. Uh, but somewhere mixed in there, is trying to keep rivalries intact while spreading around. Um, it, it it seems like uh, stopping at at sixteen is unlikely. Um, and if you go to eighteen, then I think you naturally go to to twenty <laughs> because uh, 
then it, if, if you did the the four five team pods in that and then you stuck at the nine conference games which i, I think you're kind of gone on record of saying that the big 10 is committed to nine conference games yeah. moving forward okay then i think it fits together perfectly and i wonder if if there's enough forward thinking at the big 10 offices that that's where that communication has been out there. Because if you do have a a five team pod, you play those four teams every year, then the five other teams in another pod would be your other five big 10 opponents essentially play a home and away with those pods. And then that switches every six years, essentially two two and two you're getting every team in the conference to play each other every six years you're playing your rivals every year uh and then at the end you take the um two teams with the best record because obviously there's no way to do divisions at that at that point and then you see who's playing uh in the big 10 championship is this crazy or is that way too speculative for you to you know, make, make a comment on just now. I think it, it really, you know, that's, that's a smart thought. And, and I've, I've gone through all those scenarios myself in the past, um, you know, just like with the SEC with four pods of four, whoa, that makes sense. It looks like the NFL, but the, the issue is again, that, that some rivalries stretch beyond a pod's ability and some, and what their goal that, there's really two to three charges that they've looked at. The ADs have told me, and then, you know, the officials said as well is number one, the, the ultimate goal is get as many teams to the college football playoff, whatever format it looks like. Number two is to make sure you have as balanced of a championship game as you can. And I always kind of say, look, the, the East West in regular season action, it's as even as you want. I mean, 77 to 70, Ohio State's 18 and two against the West. Take Ohio State out, put them on either side. It's it's fair. Can I can I just interject and say I very much appreciate the effort and work you've put in to to communicate that the East and West aren't as far apart as people think they are. Uh, I. I feel like I'm shouting into the void when I try to have that topic, and I've always appreciated the effort (laughs) the effort (laughs) you've put towards it. Yeah, I've tried just to steer it to let's be logical. College football is the worst sport when it comes to just, you know, to not really delving into the details of a lot of discussions. Everything is groupthink in a lot of ways. If East is best and the West sucks, well, you know, Wisconsin and Iowa have great crossover records. Um, and you've got to respect that, that there's not a difference between, in fact, Iowa and Wisconsin have better records in crossover games than Michigan State and and I think Penn State even. Uh, so, but that that all being said, the other factor that they really want to do is cycle more teams around. They want to see as many games with as many opponents as possible on an equal plane. And, and any kind of div- new divisions or pods, you know, I know some people said, oh, this is simple, kick Purdue to the East and then add USC and UCLA to the West. Well, again, they want as many great matchups as they can get. And USC-Penn State, isn't going to happen very regularly if USC is in the West, but USC playing Northwestern or playing Minnesota or playing uh, Illinois and no knock to them, but that would happen with more regularity. And that just doesn't quite jive with the way they want to do things. 
Um, and, and so that's why I think it's still going to be, maybe it's a 20 team mess and it looks like a disaster, but some of the things speculating into the future, which I think we can do when it's like this, cause that's where we're at is if we get to 20 teams, it would not surprise me a bit if the, the champions week concept comes back into mm. play that maybe you're playing eight dedicated games. And then that ninth, like you have like a semifinal basically week where maybe it's a four team playoff uh, among the big 10 teams and then maybe five plays six and then maybe seven plays nine because they already played eight during the season and you know kind of go down that list or well we haven't played this team for a while let's play put them together that last week of November and then though the winner of the two semifinal games that the winners play on that first weekend in December that's also been bandied around a little bit by the SEC. So that way, you know, you can have a more fair championship game and, uh, you, you know, you can kind of go down that path. So I think there's a lot of possibilities if they go beyond 16 right now, I think we all believe that this isn't over with. Um, it's just a matter of who, who's going to pick up the, uh, you know, who's going to pick up the phone, you know, who's yeah. going to call what's Notre Dame's Notre Dame is the linchpin. They're the Notre Dame, you know, if they, if they stay with the ACC, good luck to you. But if they call the big 10 and say, I think it's time we really examine our options. You know, I mean, I, I just don't think the SEC is an option for Notre Dame. Um, I think Notre Dame would be absolutely foolish to join a conference with that conference being the ACC. Um, the Big Ten, the new Big Ten could band together and say, we're not playing you, Notre Dame. That takes away USC, Michigan, you know, all uh, older rivalries that Notre Dame would have. At that point, I feel like that's a, a pretty heavy hand uh, that would be forcing Notre Dame into the Big Ten. I wonder if they're trying to make this a more friendly uh, business deal uh, to get Notre Dame in. Um, with that being said, I'll believe it when I see it, you know, because I think if Notre Dame believes that they can stay independent till the day they die, they're going to try to, to do it. Um, I, 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 and I, I'm, I used to be more of a Notre Dame hater than I am now. Um, now I'm just more intrigued by it. I do hope it, it happens. Um, if not though, I think there's other options there because any team in the ACC Big 12 or Pac-12 or what's left of the Pac-12 is going to clamor to get into the Big 10. So at that point, if it's not Notre Dame, they're just picking who they want to bring in at that point. Right. Uh, there, there are a lot of scared teams right now, scared programs, scared athletic departments, universities, states, frankly. Um, Washington and Oregon, starting there. The other schools in the Pac-12, you just lost the number two market in the country. You lost no matter what USC has done or hasn't done on the football field in, in several years, you cannot ignore them. They're Texas. They're like Texas. You know, you just can't ignore them. And, and I think you look at uh, the ACC and they are really nervous because they are so they're handcuffed. They're, they're shackled to a corpse of this deal with that they made that they thought was a great deal. 20 years, stability, this grant of rights. And then they looked around and saw what the Big Ten is doing and what the other, you know, the SEC has done and went, oh, man, we're getting left behind. And all it takes is a couple of good lawyers. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if you're Clemson, if you're Florida State and 
Virginia Tech, possibly, uh, you know, maybe a few others, you might want to get out too. But it really, to me, revolves around, you know, how big does the Big Ten want to get? What do they see for value? Do they see Oregon as value? Do they see Washington as value? Do they see, obviously, everybody sees Notre Dame as value. But even uh, Virginia and North Carolina, because there it there has to be an academic component involved with the big 10. And, and so I, I don't know, I don't know where that's going to lead, but if it's Notre Dame, you know, do they stay at 17? They have no fear of, they don't need it to be a one round number. They could be a prime number conference, <laughs> you know, at uh, 17, but, but uh, at the same time, you know, what what's next is what's most intriguing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And something you touched on before is, that I was going to kind of expand upon just a little bit more here is having balance between whatever it is, divisions or, you know, sides of the conference yet having the big brands play almost every year. I don't know if that's possible. I think you're kind of edging towards one or the other a little bit. Uh, if, if you edge towards competitive balance, I just don't know how the top teams can play every single year. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I just think a, a natural organic almost cycle is probably the way they're going to go. And, and if it's at 16 right now, which is where it is as of this very minute, um, and you do the three, six, six method, you can make that work. And it doesn't have to be USC, Ohio state every year, but it could be USC, Ohio state and Wisconsin this year. And next year it could be USC with Michigan, Penn state. And that, and that's really what we're talking about providing that if you can make sure, ensure that your big rivalry games are played and uh, Iowa, I've, I've written about this a lot, you know, that Iowa has three teams that three games that I think is really important. And then um, nobody else really fits into that right now. Um, everybody else is more in the two. And, uh, but you know, if Michigan can continue to play Ohio state and Michigan state every year. That's a win. Ohio State, if you could play Penn State and Michigan every year, that's a win. Make sure that those games match up and then play Michigan-Penn State with frequency, but doesn't have to be every year. USC-Penn State. And then I think you're winning. You're, you're getting the games you want to get. You know, one other point I want to make for about this that I, I started to think about was Penn State and Nebraska at times have felt like outliers in this league. Uh, Penn State has talked about it a lot. Uh, Nebraska has to an extent from time to time. Um, it, it's hard to build equity when you haven't reached your, your full value as a program right now. But, but still, I think USC and UCLA really helped build something with them uh, because I can see Nebraska being a, a protected rival with USC or UCLA, one or both, or maybe both right out of the chute. Hmm. Say, we're just going to do this for a couple of years. And you're the closest one geographically. I mean, I know that doesn't matter. You're talking about 15 minutes difference in the air, but, but there is a history. Nebraska has played USC and UCLA and home and homes. And, and I think that might be a good tie in. And, and no matter what anybody says or doesn't say about Nebraska, it is, it, it is a, a primary program. It, it has massive fan base that cares immensely, that has great viewership, even when they're bad. And of course, when they're good, they're, they're, they're on top of the world. So I think that's something that should be explored. And I think Penn State also, you know, hey, Penn State USC series, because the problem with Penn State's always had is everybody else has a different rival than them. You know, that's, that's a big, even, you know, great games with Ohio State, great games with Michigan State for that, you know, 
pipe organ that they play for and then <laughs> the land grant trophy and then you know michigan as well and then iowa i think that's been a really interesting series but not one of those teams can point out and say europe that's the biggest rival and not to say that usc and ucla will say that too but i think it just might be hey we're kind of together in this we're, we're kind of outsiders and we're trying to fit in and, and so i, I really like that idea for them that they may just it just might find a little bit more of a kinship but ironically, I think if Penn State was offered Pitt to join the conference, they wouldn't want him to join. Oh, no, absolutely not. No <laughs> way in hell. But that's their, that's a definite rival uh-huh. to both fan bases. Yeah. You know, that goes all the way back to the to, to Pitt. Uh, and, well, trying to get the, the Big East, the original Big East, like football conference that Joe Paterno was trying to get. Pitt shutting it down and then joining the Big East, uh, being able to get in for, for all sports. And, or at least basketball. So I think, uh, you know, and, you know, that's a recruiting thing. We'll, we'll, we see that in, in all these types of states where, um, you know, you look at Florida, Florida State to an extent, South Carolina, Clemson to an extent, Louisville, Kentucky, Georgia, Georgia Tech. They don't mind playing them. They don't mind, you know, them being in a major conference, but they sure don't, you know, Iowa, Iowa State, but they sure don't want them in their conference. So, um Either way, it's pretty fascinating. Yeah, and one last thing I'd build on with what you're talking about with Nebraska, um, you know, USC, UCLA thing. It'll be interesting to hear Nebraska fans' response to that. And one thing I saw yesterday is, you know, Nebraska, as much as any team uh, around them, has gotten into California for Mm -hmm. recruiting. So maybe that, you know, reopens that channel there a little bit. I mean, just kind of another intriguing part of that. Um. Here's a question, again, I had written down 24 hours ago. I think it can still semi-apply to even with how crazy things have been. Um, Originally, uh, when I thought the big news that we're going to talk about is the eventual elimination of the divisions in the Big Ten, um, a prediction that I made recently on the podcast that Kurt and I made on the podcast uh, was that even when the divisions go away, I think you're going to see the records of the teams in the Big Ten going back 10 years are going to look very similar projecting forward 10 years. So so you kind of already not in there. Um, I I think you agree, meaning, you know, to call it out, um, Ohio State is going to have the best record of anybody in the Big Ten. Probably Rutgers is going to be, you know, near the bottom. Iowa and Wisconsin are going to have – pretty darn good records, Michigan state. I, I think we'll still get that. Uh, however, throwing USC into the mix uh, with Lincoln Riley just taken over, uh, it definitely ups the ante uh, for that thought process moving forward. Oh, absolutely. It's really fascinating because if USC can be USC again, well, what they have been, you know, what they were like under Pete Carroll, that you've just added, uh, you know, a Titan and, you know, that's going to impact everybody else. I, I think you're right in that, that, you know, there's going to be some ups and downs over time uh, that some teams, you know, if, if Kirk Ferentz retires and Iowa doesn't hire a good coach, uh, it could fall down very quickly. Um, if Michigan state loses Mel Tucker and you get a bad coach, that could be an Illinois type program or if Illinois under Brett Bielema takes off, it could be a really good program or Rutgers could be 
modest with Greg Schiano. Well, I think th- there's some room for yep. moving up and down, but I don't know that there's going to be that. Okay, um, North uh, Purdue is going to be a power player necessarily consistently. They may be a good team or good program or, you know, maybe reach an Iowa level, but I don't see them reaching an Ohio state level. So I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. And the good teams with good programs and good coaches that are self-aware, understand what their strengths and weaknesses are, they're going to be fine. And, and going to Iowa city and at night, especially, you know, it's a pit. I don't care if you're USC or you're Ohio state, you've seen it. It's a tough place to play. Um, but we've also seen Northwestern and Purdue beat Iowa there. So I, I, the, the one team I think that has the most upward ability potential is Nebraska. I do. I've always thought that, that you either a get the right coach in there with the right players. They do have the, the, the mechanism and the foundation that can take right off. And I think UCLA could fit that bowl too. They are way behind financially, which I think this move will help them. Uh, I think they could end up being like Maryland for a little while. And then all of a sudden, Boom, you know, whether it's Chip Kelly or somebody else that they can uh, become a robust, uh, you know, school in that area. So, but adding USC adds another layer of prestige that was somewhat expected when Nebraska joined, but I think we all expect this to happen now. I completely agree. And, and again, I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, projecting forward here, but if Washington and Oregon join the Big Ten, those four programs, maybe there's a, a fifth one, but USC, UCLA, Washington, Oregon, it's going to be a twofold benefit from them because they're obviously going to get the influx of the TV money. They're going to siphon all the recruits into those four schools as well. It, it's going to be a double positive for them. So that's, and by the way, that is going to take recruits away from the SEC and, and Southern fried schools which weakens the SEC and strengthens the Big Ten. Overall, I don't like this. I, I'm I'm into my 40s. I I miss the old uh, Big Ten logo where the 11 was hidden yeah, in yeah. there. You know, after Penn State joined, I, I you know that was the Big Ten I grew up on. By understanding that the ketchup is way out of the bottle, that's the stuff that excites me. It, it is the 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 power being more in the north and the west will take some talent away from the south and literally make this a more even battle you know looking at it globally for college football there yeah there are some positives certainly and i mean revenue wise the big 10 is in perfect position to execute that type of plan and and really that happened it, it has been happening since a urban meyer to Ohio State and then B, Jim Harbaugh, that the Big Ten is taking steps forward competitively. Now, if they can handle that recruiting-wise, you know, it's fascinating to see the differences maybe a little bit recruiting-wise in the two programs out there that USC recruits more globally. They try to get everybody they want in in Southern California, but they'll go anywhere to get a team. You know, they're like Ohio State in that regard. UCLA is probably more of a Southern California team, but, but now if they're a big 10 team and they can go to the recruits that may, they may have had to fight with Oregon or Arizona state or Washington. Hey, we're a big 10 team. You know, you can go and play here, 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 and here. And, and so that, that's probably a really good selling point for them. So uh, it does probably even the balance a little bit. Um, Florida will be an interesting battlefield going forward. 
Um, if Notre Dame joins, then that certainly is another global power. I, I'm just really fascinated to see how this works out. I'm not a big giant fan of the super conference era either. And everybody that, you know, 15 years ago was talking about, well, we're just building towards four 16 team super conferences. I always kept saying that is it's too jagged of a system to accomplish that based on geography and history. And um, so we might have two 20 team powerhouses or beyond that or 18 or whatever. And then you've, you're going to see some sort of um, alliance slash coalition. Let's call it a different thing. Maybe among the, the other power conferences, trying not to get left behind to figure out ways to, to measure up, um, if not competitively, certainly financially. So the last few <laughs> sections I had, I think we're, we're, I don't know about skipping them, but we're just do quick hitters because I want to move in to the last section. But NIL, um, it's probably been exhaustively spoke about for the most part. But um, really quick, I mean, I is it fair to say uh, from from what you've dealt with is that most of the college football population supports it because it's fair. You know, the 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 student athletes deserve the money. But at the same time, we just don't like it. <laughs> um, is that kind of your general feeling that you've gotten from college football fans? It's weird because it depends on where you are. Um, you know, and, and I, I feel like I the work- younger generation has less things that they pick apart as maybe compared to older people. Yeah, I think there are some that are older that look at it like you're getting a free education, be happy with it. But as we know that, um, it's an important element, no question, but, you know, come on. <laughs> when you got coaches making $8, $10 million and programs bringing in $100 million, you know, the, the players should be able to recuperate some money signing autographs, if nothing else. Uh, so, but the NIL, the discussion with collectives and $8 million quarterbacks and stuff like that, that, that freaks people out. And I understand that. Cause it's like, wow, how are we going to keep up? We can't pay that. And, you know, even our rich donors can't pay that. So, uh, but being part of the athletic and we have, you know, a wide variety of reporters who cover different programs. I was on a, when I was in Arizona in early May for kind of our summit, our annual summit, we, we scheduled a couple of panel discussions on different topics, how to cover teams and, and everything. And I was sitting next to Manny Navarro, who covers Miami for us. And his program, he covers the program I cover, could not be more different in any way, shape, or form in this area. And so to hear the NIL stories there, or at some of the Southern, you know, our Alabama writer or whatever, compared to where we are. Yeah, it, it's geographical, it's historical. Um, you know, of course, Ohio State with $13 million, um, you know, Brian Day saying that he needs to compete. So that it makes it interesting, but it's also a scary element that you don't want athletes to leave entirely for the paycheck. You'd like for them to go where they feel like they have an opportunity to play and play well and earn that money later. But I also respect the fact that some schools, you know, if there's, you know, this is a lot of money we're talking about. One guarantees you 750000 per year for four years. And another one is at 200000 that, yeah, that's a lot of money. But when you're in college, I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, that maybe the two hundred k is 
better for you because you might be able to go there and you're going to a good program with a great coach with a different opportunity. And, and maybe you'll, you're not at an institution where you may not get better, you know, and whereas the the one's cheaper, you might become a first round draft pick. So it's going to settle down. It's just a matter of when, and it's going to happen organically. And then the rules will probably come into place, which is probably what we need to see. But I, this is such a volatile situation. It's hard to predict what the, what the next phase is, let alone the next year or two. And then the last thing I would add is, um, you know, I'm a big 10 guy, so I'm a power five guy, but I, I honestly, I love all of college football. I love Thursday night Mac games. Love them. Um, I don't want to see the Mac schools go away. I, I hope they still there's still enough uh, schedule abilities to play, you know, the P5 school so they can get that paycheck and survive. Um, and at this point, I wonder if, you know, a group of five championship, right, it is is just where we're heading with that because they're they're just not they're going to be locked out of the uh the big boy playoff. Uh, and if we really care about all of the student athletes, well, the student athletes at Toledo should matter as much as the student athletes at Michigan, you know? Mm-hmm. And I feel like I never hear that. And I am nervous for those, like the, the Utah's and Iowa state, uh, when the, when the college football musical chair stops, they will be hurt, but I think they'll survive. But I don't know if I can say that about the Mac and SWAC schools. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope, I hope they do survive, but am I crazy to think I, I also have the right to be nervous for them too? Oh, I think every level should be concerned right now. And I think they're, you know, the governance structure is going to matter immensely into what the future holds for postseason and, and even really, you know, some semi-even matchups during the regular season because, you know, Ohio State's Gene Smith said when I talked to him in May that, you know, when he they want he has a plan, it's called a 120 or 130, I think it is, where all the the FBS programs are governed by themselves. But if if you're in the Mac, if you're even in the Mountain West to an extent, certainly the Sun Belt and some other ones. Um, there is a splintering. Your the revenue with disparity is going to be so high that they're almost like AAA programs. Where if you're really good at take your pick at the MAC or or the Sun Belt, if the SEC or the Big Ten calls, you know, hey, I, they called my high school coach and said if uh, you know we could really use that running back uh, if he's interested, and voila, he moves on, then you know, what is it for you? What's, what are you in it for? And maybe it is, maybe it's a time where the, the group of five and, and the upper levels of the, of the FCS are as good as the G5. I mean, you can take North Dakota state and they can win any of the G5 leagues any year. South Dakota state is in that category. James Madison was in that category, even Northern Iowa. And, and, and you know, half of the upper half of the Missouri Valley is every bit as good as the upper half of the Mac. So you know, maybe it's it's more of a reforming of some of that. And I don't know if scholarships will play into it, but that's what I could see happening. And that wouldn't be all bad. I mean, if they could have a separate identity instead of going to the Boca Raton Bowl and the Bahamas Bowl and losing a ton of money, maybe it's like, you know what, we're going to have a 16-team playoff with the upper level of the, of the G5. And maybe the there's a reforming of the 
you know, upper level or I mean the, the G5 and then the upper level of the FCS, then maybe it's it's a really solid, the fun tournament and they play it in the middle of the week. We're all going to be watching it. We'll be watching that probably yep. more than we will college basketball into December. All right. I would be remiss if we didn't talk about my Hawks, Scott. Um, so I'm going to start out with a little quiz. You ready? All right. All right. All right. Nervous. We're going to have a mystery coach one and two that we're going to compare. Okay. You ready? Okay. Yeah. See if you can guess mystery coach one. Uh, he is entering his 24th year at the school. Uh, he has a 62% winning percentage, two conference championships, plus two division champion uh, championships, four-time conference coach of the year, two-time national coach of the year. Scott Docterman, who am I? I would uh, say you're Captain Kirk Ferentz. Figured you would get that one. All right, <laughs> yeah, now we're going to compare you. him. Yeah, now we're going to compare him to Mystery Coach 2. I think you'll get this, but we'll see. Um, he's entering his 19th year at his school. He has a 67% winning percentage, one P5 conference championship, four P5 division championships, one conference coach of the year, zero national coaches of the year awards. Scott, who am I? Nineteenth year at his at his school. Um, it sounds like Kyle Whittingham to me. Nailed it. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, now, if you drop uh, Utah to just win, or Kyle Whittingham is what I should say, just to win, he's been a P5 coach. Okay. So since Utah joined the Pac-12, his winning percentage is 63%. And remember, uh, Coach Ferentz's was 62%, right? Like, Things look a lot more even ever since he's had to compete at the P5 level. And I don't think we're exactly saying the Pac-12 is elite P5 competition. So why is it, Scott, that for summer polls, when they you know, say who the best coach is in college football, why is it that Kyle Whittingham is for sure in the top 10 and Coach Ferentz has to fight to be in the top 20? Because I think it's silly. It's silly, no question. The, the one thing that I have gathered from all these years, it's Iowa is not a sexy program. Yeah. That it's it, about, and talking to even people I work with, that oh, I got to watch Iowa. You know, it's because they don't, there's not an appreciation for winning in that style. And winning low, low score football when you have 55 to, to 48 in certain parts of the country, uh, big plays on offense. Iowa's lack of offense drags down the the interest or what have you in Kirk. It shouldn't. It shouldn't. It should be all even. It doesn't matter if you win, you know, 16 to, to 10 or if you win 46-40, but it does. It matters what they do on offense. Um, just like, you know, Phil Parker doesn't get recognized nearly enough, in my opinion, either. Uh, why? Because he didn't invent anything defensively. He just they just play good, sound defense and a lot of different, you know, you know, quarter, quarter, half, you know, four, three slash four, two, five, uh, two gap up front. There's not anything ingenious. It's just do your job and it, it works. And so that's really the problem. You know, Kirk doesn't get enough credit for his personality. I think it's really strong and, you know, but you don't know that on a podium. Um, you know that more in the I size. can assure you the coach Ferentz on the podium and the one that's at practice are completely yeah. different. I, <clears throat> I'm surprised even common fans can't understand that these coaches 
are two different, you know, people for how they have to be. And that's not a judgment. That's just how it is. Um, you're already kind of getting into, I had, I had shared with you that I was going to give you a, my 10,000 foot view <clears throat> on Iowa football. And then the, yeah. the more two, uh, 2022 view, excuse me. Um, yeah. and I know you just did your state of the program. Um, mm-hmm. And the polls, which were always fantastic. Um, I don't know if we'll have a ton of time to get into that, but I think Iowa fans' 10,000-foot view of Iowa football is that uh, very much appreciate Coach Ferentz as a, as a person and coach. Overall, very proud of the football program. Uh, we love the ruggedness. Uh, we, we're tough. Um, we're physically oriented, you know, both sides of the ball. Uh, but, and, and, and I don't, I don't even know if enough Hawkeye fans understand that complimentary football is the goal mm-hmm. in inside Kinnick. It, it, it's not fake. It is a real thing. That complimentary football is why Iowa football is something you put out all the time is eighth or ninth in power five wins. Since mm-hmm. 2015, you don't get up that high unless you're doing something right. I think it is because of that complimentary football. But because we care so much about the football program, much like you would care about a family member, mm-hmm. you, you always want more. Um, and then it, it, it comes in the form of offense in that. Uh, and you don't have to be that old, you know, about my age. You remember the Hayden Fry teams that. Believe it or not, uh, younger people, they threw the ball all over the field. Um, And I think that's still intertwined with Hawkeye fan fandom DNA. And I I think that's maybe just kind of the last thing, you know, that we're yearning for. No question. It's it's an excitement that is associated with offense, the scoring points, doing it through the air. And, uh, you know, that. Every fan base has its, you know, personality, and there are personality detriments. And I've been around Iowa long enough, obviously, to know kind of what that is. And that's an insecurity, and that's an insecurity based on the fact that people at the national level don't appreciate us. And and it's not because you know I, I went through this the other day. You know that even since 2018, Iowa has the seventh best winning percentage of any Power Five program. That is incredible. Uh, for to be Iowa in there, that's even ahead of Wisconsin at this point, you know. So, and then this 2015, I think they're ninth in wins among Power Five. So they've done what it need, what they need to do. It's just, again, not being able to. We all see it, right? You know, it's it's the quarterback not being able to complete a pass when they need to complete a pass, or you know, march down the field when you want to to win the game. You know, and that's why I think Ricky Stanzi is so beloved. It's because when the when there was money time, he did it because you look statistically, uh, he's had they've had some better ones since then. But the Michigan State drive stands out, or players making big plays on offense that just doesn't happen. In fact, I, I ref, I'll reference the panel discussion earlier, and I said I'm going to give you the twenty thousand view of Iowa football is what I think you guys were looking at is Iowa is the most boring program in the country. It's had the same coach for almost twenty five years. They play, they're one of the worst offenses statistically in the country. They don't score a ton of points. They don't hit the transfer portal. They don't have, they don't have skill position players in the Heisman race. 
you know, this is the view of Iowa football. I said, but if you come down to my level and peel back the layers, you're going to see a team that, that kicks the shit out of a lot of teams that it shouldn't, that it plays really hard. If you want to play them and you lose, you're going to feel it the next day because they run and hit, they attack, they are moving. You're getting me excited here. Scott. I know. I love I, it. I, I love I, it. Kind of, yeah. Um, their offensive lineman is not to wall you off. It's to bury you. And that's the, you know, and then defensively it's the same way and they win these games and they have a passionate fan base that cannot be understated. And if you, you know, and I, I laughed with Stewart about this and I said, if you call your, their coach, one of the five worst in the country, they'll come after you. Yep. And, and so I get it. I understand it. Not enough people appreciate it. And in some ways, it's kind of encompassed as the, the Big Ten West because Wisconsin's in a similar boat where there's a frustration with that program and what it doesn't do offensively, even though they've had a lot of success, just like Iowa, probably a little more. Uh, but it can't get over the top. Iowa can't get over the top. And what is over the top? Winning a Big Ten championship, getting the playoff, competing in the playoff, probably winning a playoff game. You know, those are the types of things that have kind of put Iowa and Wisconsin in particular, Michigan State as well, too, except for the 15-year, not really into the breaking the ceiling. And I think that's frustrating for Iowa fans. I know it is. Um, but, again, you got to appreciate what you got because, you know, some of the things I know from covering Kirk all these years was there was that rash of arrests in, like, 2007, 2008, you know, City Boys Inc., you know, the – five felonies no player that's ever been charged with a felony let alone adjudicated with felony has ever played for iowa again um, that he does make that a hallmark of his program and they've had some big time issues don't question but i think overall it's a program that most people can be proud of it's just you want somebody who can complete that pass on third and eight extended drive and win a game a big game more often maybe win a championship game uh, in a, or a major bowl as opposed to getting there and losing or, or whatever. And uh, as much as the narrative has been tried to push on us on that coach uh, a little bit further West uh, that dresses from head to toe in our primary color and, and how he's the, the hottest coach in the state five-star last year, five-star this year. Uh, we, we just found out still wound up in Hawkeye gear. So as hard as you want to push it, it's still a Hawkeye state and the top talent is still coming to Iowa city. Yeah. It's quite the battle, but yes. I mean, if you can get the, the pipeline from Southeast Polk to Iowa city and get a five-star safety and a five-star tackle, Iowa's always going to be very competitive in the state recruiting wise. Now Iowa state has made it much more challenging. No question. Um, I did a survey a couple of weeks ago uh, or I talked to six different coaches from really five different regions, two in, in the Des Moines area and the rest around the state to kind of gauge the recruiting. That was a great, that was a great article. You can do that every off season as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. Well, I appreciate it. And it was, it was interesting because Reese Morgan had such command of the state. He being a fantastic high school coach. I don't know if people realize what he did at Iowa city West, but it was. And Benton the, community. Yeah. And Benton, he was a hall of famer at Benton community devised plans to beat Kurt Warner when he was at Regis. And then went, went to Iowa, he was a, became a Hall of Famer. Then he went to West and led, he was like Bill Snyder with national championships. So that's basically what he was. Iowa City West was the losingest program of any of the major uh, high schools. And then he wins, what, two or three titles. Goes to Iowa and 
the year before, probably about the time you were there, I want to say there were two kids that signed with Iowa that one was a junior college kid and one was a, a, a high, high school. And that was it for the state of Iowa. And Reese completely turned that around because he knows how to walk into a high school and talk to the coach. He talks to their talk, understands them, takes their calls, fights for their kids. You know, a guy like Josie Jules is legendary in the state because of it. But, you know, Josie was a two-star, try hard from, you know, oh, yeah, well, he's this. If it, you know, And finally, he pushed enough with Kirk and said, fine, okay, go ahead and offer him. And worst case scenario, we make him a fullback. <laughs> and, of course, he became uh, first-team All-American linebacker, the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year. And then, so Reese can speak their language. Replacing Reese has not been easy, but they've made it happen because they've done, they pushed in the right areas and then going against Iowa state so frequently. And that is, yes, Iowa is still a better program, no question, but you know, the way they recruit, it's, it's, a, it's a different game, but Iowa's still getting who they really, really want. I think coach Woods has done a fantastic job of filling the Reese void uh, yeah. that was put there. So last question, I know you got to get out of here. Uh, so 10,000 foot view first. Now let's uh, siphon it down to the, uh, 2022 view of Iowa football. So a saying I like is that college football fans oversimplify things and college football coaches overcomplicate things. Uh, But I'm wondering if it is as simple as this. If Iowa can eliminate the negative plays in the running game and a little bit in the passing game too in the year 2022, that uh, assuming – that the defense is the Iowa defense and assuming the Iowa special teams are the Iowa special teams that we've gotten used to the past five years or so. Uh, If we can get back on schedule offensively that we can get back up there (laughs) as far, you know, do I think Iowa football and the Iowa offense is going to be a a top 30 offense? I do. I do not. Uh, But there was moments of good play calling in 2020 even in 2018 and 19, I feel like that has been pushed so far down that that it, it it's not even you can't even bring it up again. I, I I'm not my head's not, are not my head is not so far into the clouds that I think this is going to be a top offense. But there's enough there, I believe, with experience garnered last year, hopeful improvements along the offensive line to have an offense that's more on schedule to have more second and third downs on schedule where things just quote unquote look better. Well, I think you're right. I think you'll see a much better running game. And one of the things, and is part running back, part offensive line is, uh, you know, Tyler Goodson led the country and in, in most lost carries 45 carries of negative yards or 105, I think it was yards lost. Part of it was offensive line, especially on the outside zone, did not do its job, did not seal the edge. The backside guards didn't pick up their guys. And then Tyler Goodson, instead of putting his head down a lot of times, picking up one yard or zero yards, was dancing. And then, you know, and then it was second, 13, 14. This is not the offense, as we know, that you can get off schedule very often and be successful. I expect that to be a lot different. And it was, and really, you, I think the, I mean, we got a glimpse in the bowl game. Yeah, we just, just did. I was going to bring that up, that what we saw against Kentucky was what Iowa's capable of doing. They only had one negative carry in that game. Uh, they ran the ball at a clip that they wanted to. It was a lot of inside zone, and you don't have your center. But um, 
but the running backs are more downhill oriented. And, and Goodson was great in a lot of different areas, but these guys are different. And I think when you look at a Mason Richmond, for instance, and the growth that he's made physically and, and mentally, I think he could be a difference maker on the edge that that'll allow them to run more outside zone, be more on schedule. Cause when I look at Iowa in 2020, um, among the things that I see is, you know, they ran for 4.6 yards per carry, which is the, the highest since Sean Green was there. And then they also were second Big Ten scoring that year. People forget that. Those two stats stand out a lot more to me than what they rank nationally in as total offense because they're slowing the tempo. They're, they're having a cumulative blow on each and every possession that teams can't stand in the fourth quarter. And then you can run your fourth quarter offense to perfection and you don't need to stretch the field. You shorten the game. You allow your defense on the field less often with a lead so they can do things that make them successful, which is part of that complimentary package that you were talking about. So I can see that vividly this year. The question I have two big questions for Iowa is one, can you get better quarterback play? I think that's possible. But thinking it and doing it are two different things. And right now, I'm just going to wait. I'm just, I'm not going to drag Spencer through the ground. He's worked hard. I do know that that he cares, and he's the smartest quarterback I've ever been around. Con- contrary to popular belief, no Iowa fans are rooting against Spencer Petras. We are just wholeheartedly rooting for good quarterback play. Right. You don't want to miss the open receiver when he's there a lot. Now the problems right now with him and Brian both is that there's no margin of error in what people think. So if it's a bad play call on third down, if it's an interception or it's an incompletion or a misfire, everybody's going to jump to, you know, it's not going to be like, all right, we'll get him next time. It's, <laughs> you know, everybody's going to get mad about it. The other one is, is special teams oriented and that's kicker. Uh, there's been some great kickers. Keith Duncan, certainly and Caleb Shudek were money and not just in the final seconds, but, you know, for Keith Duncan to go over to Iowa State in 2019 and kick four field goals in four quarters of four different weather conditions and four different types of uh, sunlight, <laughs> you know, because that game took six hours, is really underrated. Um, I think they've Iowa's had six different games where they have four field goals in the last three years. So can Drew Stevens, if it's the freshman, or Aaron Blom, uh, be able to step in there and kick those field goals? Because we know that this team's going to be close you know, with, with Michigan at home or with Wisconsin at home or at Minnesota. And it could be the difference between getting back to Indianapolis and going seven and five and going to the Dukes Mayo Bowl. So that's, that's really the margin of error I see for the teams. I expect their defense to be better than last year, especially up front. I expect the running game to be better. And I do think the passing game will be a little bit more improved, but it's really about making the makeables in the passing game and kicking the, the, the field goals that are necessary to, to win these games. So uh, we won't know those answers, especially on the field goal part until you get into those situations. If you really want to go crazy glass half full, maybe the fact that there isn't a stalwart field goal kicker, maybe that forces our hand to be a little bit more aggressive on offense. And maybe that aggressiveness leads to more seven point ends to the drive than three point ends to the drive. We'll see. Um, I do think the wide receivers are, are going to be better. Uh, they were simply young last year, but I think Hawkeye fans see the talent again. I'm trying to put a governor on it. I'm not expecting it to look like 
you know, uh, a high powered offense, but I think it's something that can help uh, the development and growth uh, of the offense. And I guess one more question I'd ask is there sure seemed to be a lot to the Joey Labas phenomenon. That was something that even you wrote about. Um, there's a couple of people that have gotten a nice look behind the curtain and they've seen the talent uh, from Joey Labas too. Is that, is that dead now? Or do we still have something that uh, that's got a little bit of validity to that? It's not dead and they like him a lot. And I think there's the potential there. I think it might be for Iowa eyes, maybe a year away. Uh, it's not to say that he can't jump, make that jump. And they want him to. Um, the defensive coaches were completely sold on him as the scout team quarterback because he went out and made plays against them. And I had a conversation with one of the assistants and, and they're like, yeah, he goes off script way too much or something. I said, well, maybe on offense, you guys need to go off script. <laughs> and it, they kind of laughed because it was a defensive assistant. You know, that, that was, uh, um, but anyway, I don't know that he's going to be caught up in their offense enough to overtake Spencer that way. But I also think that they're, they're willing to have that competition. The one thing is Spencer has welcomed any kind of thoughts of competition. You know, he has gone out East and worked with Tony Rassiopi, who's worked, you know, with Kenny Pickett and, and Joe Flacco. He's been out there a lot. He's at the Manning Academy he has every opportunity to make it happen. He has a live arm, you know, what, what are, what is Iowa going to do to help make that look better? I don't know. Um, so, but Joey Labus is certainly going to be considered, but unless he can run Iowa's offense the way they want to run ran, I, I think he's probably a year away from making a competitive situation. And I think we can do that. Meaning a quarterback running Iowa's offense and just adding a twinge of, mobility because I watch a lot of college football and I see the play yeah. break down and the quarterback simply get out of trouble and maybe he throws for a completion maybe he just picks up a whopping four yards I feel like that's the future with with Labas and then um uh the uh recruit whose names escapes me and in, in yeah yep uh the next recruiting class and Proctor's recruiting class um CJ Beathard was pretty mobile. We had some success with him. I mean, if you really kind of look, you know, at the mobile quarterbacks over the uh, Coach Ferentz tenure, <laughs> they've done really well with mobile quarterbacks. I don't know. I think that's something that we could see kind of moving forward a little bit. No question, because I think that's been the real problem other than quarterback sneaks with Stanley is the last two quarterbacks have not been mobile enough. And, and you've got to have that piece that it's third and eight, third and six, Nobody's really open. They're covering them really tight. It's one-on-one. -on -one. Get that quarterback out there and he can run for seven yards and pick up that first down. C.J. Beathard, I want to say in 2015, I have the number. I'd have to go through my files. It'd take me forever to find it. But uh, I think it was 34 first downs he picked up with his legs. And if you can do that and extend drives, um, that means points. That means complimentary football eventually. Maybe it's, Maybe it's simply picking up an extra first down and you punt from a better position and you force your opponent to go 85 yards instead of, you know, 35 or something like that. And all that matters. So I think, you know, whether it's Labus, Padilla, or, uh, you know, uh, Linus coming in next year, I think that element is going to be there beyond Spencer. And I think Spencer is trying to do that. But if the, the one question I've had was like last year, they combined for 55% passing completion percentage. Spencer was at 57. If you're going to be at those numbers, you better run the ball. 
And if you can't run the ball and if you're going to, your completion percentage is that bad, you're, you're going to be in trouble offensively. And that's what they were. So if Spencer can get into 63 to 65%, then that, that those are winning numbers, but you, you know, still you can't make up for the fact we saw all those Northwestern wins against Iowa in the past uh, with Dan purses and stuff. It's because third and four, okay, there's just a crease picks up five yards and, you know, and, and kills you like water on your temple. Three and outs are soul killers for an offense. Third and sevens where a quarterback scrambles for the first down are soul killers for the defense. I'm hoping we see a little bit more of the latter moving yeah. forward with Iowa football. Scott, I know you got to get going. Uh, I very much appreciate you fitting this into your schedule, especially knowing that you're you know supposed to be off. Um, uh, we will promote this. We loved having you on the uh, Eyes on Big podcast. Anything else you want to add before we let you go here? Oh, not really. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, it's certainly been a, a monumental day, a couple of days in, in college sports history, frankly, sports history, if you would want to go beyond that. And uh, it's, it's it's been fun to be able to share that with um, yeah, I don't mean to make uh, people can do whatever they want with the money, but in my opinion, uh, the money you can put towards the athletics, Scott alone is worth it for the uh, 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 college football articles he puts out there. And obviously there's a, a plethora of a lot of other college football articles that people can uh, uh, take from that awesome website. Scott, thanks a lot for joining us on the Eyes on Big podcast, and we will talk to you soon. And there was Scott Docterman of The Athletic. Uh, thanks again, Scott, for joining our podcast. Anything to add? Nothing to add. Just, just thank you, Scott. Again, really appreciate you joining the cast. I am Jeffrey the Greek. I am Big Kurt. This has been the Eyes on Big Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.